Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and that's found on page 980 of the Church Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, it's my job to preach today, so uh, why don't I pray for us just once again and uh, as we set our minds to this scripture. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that uh, we have your word to guide us. We pray for help. Father, so easily our hearts go astray, but as we open the scripture today, we just pray you'd set us on track. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in the Sierra Nevada mountain range in the US state of California, there's a mountain peak called Middle Palisade. It's the 12th highest peak in the state and it towers 14,000 feet high. Professional mountain climbers Alex Honnold and Cedar Wright set out on a climbing expedition to climb this mountain. They packed their equipment, ropes, climbing gear, maps, all the things that experienced mountain climbers need to reach that summit, to experience the glory of standing on top of the mountain. So they set off their adventure, following their maps, making their way along the trails made by previous climbers. And at a certain point, I guess the climb gets difficult. You know how it is, those rock faces that are nearly vertical. For other climbers, it'd be so difficult, but for these experienced men, they're not intimidated. Fearlessly, painstakingly, pushing and pulling themselves upward, upward until at last they, they go over that out, last outcrop of rock and they stand at the very top. You can you imagine how they're feeling at that moment as they reach the top? And as they stood there looking out at that magnificent mountain range all around, you know what they saw? They saw the high peak of Middle Palisade off in the distance. These experienced mountain climbers had climbed the wrong mountain. Instead of experiencing the glory they had hoped, I guess they experienced Mount Disappointment. Now that's a true story, but I want to use it as a kind of parable to introduce our scripture today, because when it comes to spiritual things, the Bible points out our sinful tendencies as men and women to go the wrong way. As we seek to climb to the top of that mountain, as we seek glory and status, for example, Proverbs 14.12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but, the end, but, the, but its end is the way of death. You see, there's a way to glory that seems normal and natural to us as human beings, isn't it? It feels like the way to go, not least, of course, because it's the road that everyone else is going. 
But in the end, it's actually a spiritual version of Mount Disappointment. Now I start this way because our passage today in Philippians 2 describes for us a different way to behave as a Christian community, a different way to glory, a way of thinking and a way of acting, a mindset to carry out that is in opposition to that other way, that way of the world. But let me give you some context to the book of Philippians. As Paul writes this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome, waiting the outcome of a trial, an appeal to Caesar. He's on trial for upsetting the Jews. He's upset up and try for upsetting the Roman Empire with his gospel proclamation. And so Philippians, I think, is a very significant book when it comes to thinking about Christian pastoral concerns because it asks the question, if you were possibly not going to see a church of Christians again, a church of Christians that you helped to start, what would you say to them? What would you say to keep them going? Well, Paul's chief concern in the book of Philippians, I think, is outlined in chapter 1 and in verse 27, just over the page if you want to look with me. Verse 27 says this, Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul wants for them, whether he's present or absent. And that mission state, I think, is worth thinking about, isn't it? Is that what concerns us most at New City Church, a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? United together, striving for the faith of the gospel, defending it, proclaiming it, schooling ourselves in God's work of salvation, because that's what concerns Paul most of all. But see, Paul is aware that that isn't going to be easy. That's why the book of Philippians, in every chapter, he outlines the threats and challenges to living this way. If we allow circumstances to trip up our thinking, we could go off track. We could begin climbing that mountain thinking we're going the way, right way, but only to get to the top and we're put to shame. So in chapter 1, he deals with the challenge of persecution and suffering in the Christian faith. Paul was suffering in prison and the Philippians were facing their own persecutions. And yet Paul reminds them that it was God's will for them to suffer. Indeed, God would use that suffering to further the gospel. But if we don't have a gospel mindset, we might consider ourselves unworthy of suffering. Or if we might think that God's mission is derailed when Christians go to prison, but it isn't, says Paul. So how do we deal with those difficulties? How do we conduct ourselves in a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel despite persecutions and sufferings? Well, that question leads us into chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul wants to lead them into this mindset, a mindset that will be resilient and will keep them standing firm for the gospel. So look at what it says in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now Paul says if, if there is any encouragement. But I think he's been a bit cheeky here. He's making some rhetorical statements. Of course there is, Paul is saying. In fact, all these things, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection and mercy for the Christian, they flow from being in Christ, united to him in the bonds of his death and resurrection. Having believed his word of promise, we're bound together by God's love and fellowship and spirit. See, this is the mindset that Paul wants to lead them into. This mindset is rooted in these gospel blessings. The source of this mindset for every believer and for the church as a whole is found in their link to Jesus, which means this gospel mindset, it isn't circumstantial. It doesn't change with our struggles. Paul's in prison Yet there's no little consolation in that, but, no, but that's not where Paul's comfort comes from, is it? His encouragement is derived from his fellowship with Jesus Christ, but not only that, his fellowship with other believers, this very church 
who helped him on his mission, even ministered to him while he was in prison. So let me ask you, and us as a church, is that where your comfort is rooted? Is it your fellowship with Christ and with other believers that gets you through, that keeps you on track for God? And God will teach us where our encouragement comes from because he'll bring those times when the wheels start falling off the wagon. And we have to ask, is there solace and strength for you in Christian community? Is that where you're looking or somewhere else? Or maybe you've withdrawn But the gospel mindset doesn't commend isolation, rather it commends to us fellowship and unity. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How many words do you think Paul could fit into, into a sentence about unity? It says same, same, in full accord, one. I mean, there can be no doubt that Paul desires unity for these gathering of believers. But it's not just any kind of unity. It's not about wearing the same clothes or having the same likes and dislikes. No, they're to find their unity in the things of verse 1, the blessings and experience of the gospel. How are they going to stand firm for God in Philippi? By each one thinking in accord with the blessings that they have in Jesus Christ. That's what makes for a resilient faith. And I think Paul models this mindset brilliantly where he says, complete my joy, he says. You see, the bonds of Christian fellowship in the gospel are to be strong, such that when you hear that your fellow believers are standing firm in gospel faithfulness and experiencing Christ's love and mercy and sharing it with those in their Christian community, despite the hardships and suffering around them, it brings you joy or it brings sadness if that's not the case. Because Paul's heart and our heart should be inextricably linked with the rest of God's family. And so Paul's statement here is astonishing, really, because we might excuse Paul considering the difficulties he's currently facing. We might excuse him if he were overly concerned about his struggles and suffering right now. After all, he's in prison. But that's not what Paul's really concerned about in this letter. He's concerned about their welfare. He's concerned about their sufferings and well-being. And so that's a beautiful lead-in, isn't it, to verse 3 and 4, where Paul writes to them, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, not all challenges for for the church in living faithful lives for the gospel come from without, do they? Some of them come from within, within the gathering, from within the hearts of believers selfish ambitions, conceitedness, thinking too much of ourselves. These threaten the unity of the gathering because they don't belong to that gospel mindset. They belong to that other way that seems all too natural for us. And if we're going through tough times, we do tend to look to tend to look after numero uno first, don't we? And so suffering and selfishness, they're often related. It feels natural when struggles come to look out for ourselves first, but that isn't always the way the Christian community, communal life is to operate. Instead, Paul gives us a remedy to that way of thinking. He says, do it the other way around. Let other people's interests, difficulties and struggles come before your own. Isn't that a strange concept? But this is where we get to the crux of the gospel mindset that ensures our unity as a church. It's this attitude of humility, considering others more important than ourselves. That's what maintains our unity around the gospel blessings. Now, humility was largely considered an ugly concept in the world of Paul's day. Humility humility was fitting for slaves, 
And unsurprisingly, the attitude of many in Paul's day was that Christianity appeared to be a religion for women and slaves. But is it any different in our day? You don't see this others first concept on Facebook memes. You don't see humility modelled by go-to influencers like Andrew Tate who seem to have conflated masculinity with conceitedness as if they were inseparable traits. And that's because our culture, I think, also finds humility offensive, just as they did in ancient Rome. It's exactly why so many today also turn away from the gospel, because the mindset is too foreign. As we want to climb that ladder of reputation and status, it doesn't make sense to us to consider the well-being of others first. Isn't climbing that ladder, letting other people climb, ahead, climbing down the ladder, letting other people climb up before you? But it shouldn't work that way in the church, brothers and sisters. But if we're being honest, we too, I think, bring this cultural baggage, this offence at humility into the church. As I was reading this week, I came across one commentator which described the great of the gospel mindset like this. He writes this. For the vast majority of Christians in the US and Europe, this sort of common life is largely unimaginable. Moreover, when we do imagine it, we often find it repellent. We've been so deeply schooled in individualism that the ecclesial life to which Paul and the Philippians call us can only sound alien and frightening. I suspect that to the extent that we can imagine this sort of ecclesial accountability in our particular churches, we can also only imagine it as an oppressive form of Christianity. Now that's pretty sad, but I think he's right. Because the fact is the church in our lifetimes has done very well at reshaping the gospel into something that resembles a topic of personal and individual liberty and freedom and experience and individualised worship. We've created a consumer culture in the church, a never-ending band of church hoppers looking for something more comfortable or more exciting, somewhere where they can be recognised, and on it goes. Rather than cultivating the unity and the common bond that the gospel of salvation creates in gathering the church. And that's why when you go to Kurong, there's no coffee mugs that say others are more important. Because we don't like to cast the gospel on those terms, because we know those around it, around us find it the concept repugnant. And so I think we are ashamed. The church has reshaped itself after the world and a subtle selfishness has crept in and Christian worship has been redefined as all about me. But these things kill Christian unity and faithfulness. They destroy the bonds that, we cre- that, God, that Christ himself has created by joining us together in the gospel. But let us ask ourselves today, why are we ashamed? Because as Paul goes on from verse 5, we see that actually it's Christ himself who exemplified and magnified this way of thinking and acting. From verse 5, Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or we could translate it, which is also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, after reading that gospel poem, we should ask, why are we ashamed of this humble mindset? Isn't the humble self-sacrifice at the heart of Christ's work? I mean, note some of the details of Paul's gospel presentation here. Jesus already occupied the highest status. He didn't even need to climb the ladder. He he was already at the top. He shares equality with God. I mean, look no further if you wanted a scripture in the Bible that tells us in no uncertain terms of who Jesus is. 
He's the divine, sharing all the attributes of the Godhead. And yet rather than clutching at that, defending that stasis as we often do, he exudes this attitude of self-debasement. He divests himself of that form and takes on the form of a slave, the likeness of a man, that he might perform service, that as a man he might suffer, that he might die a horrible death, crucified and put to shame on a cross. I mean, in ancient Rome, there really was no more humiliating a death that could be experienced beside crucifixion. You're stripped naked, hung in public, nailed to a wooden cross as one's peers walk by and they mock you. It was so repulsive a form of punishment to the Romans that it was deemed illegal for Roman citizens. But they used this great death of humiliation as a warning to anybody who would disobey Roman power. And yet that symbol of humiliation, God turns to his own purposes. It's the, extent, it's the extent of that humiliation that Jesus, the, the Son of God, is willing to suffer. But in order for that death to be an act of self-sacrificing humility, it has to achieve something for others, doesn't it? His death has to make atonement for the sins of the people that they might be rescued. Jesus Christ can only be the humble one if, he's in, if in his death the penalty of our sins are paid for, because only then will he be motivated by love considering the interests of others as more important than his own. So why are we ashamed, brothers and sisters, of this gospel mindset? Because contrary to the way the world thinks, humbling ourselves before God and before each other in our common bond, that's actually the real path to glory. And Jesus himself shows us that way in verses 9-11. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Can you, can you see how God works? He likes to turn the world's ideas on their head and thereby put them to shame. So while the world pursues glory through its selfish pursuits, stepping on others to climb to the top, God, on the other hand, humbled his beloved son to the point of death that he might bestow on him the position of ultimate glory. Glory comes through the obedience of suffering and servanthood to God and his people. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So let me make application, brothers and sisters, of this text today. Let's ask the question of what this gospel mindset should look like among us. How do we live worthy lives for the gospel? Well, is there any encouragement in Christ in our community? Is there comfort for the struggling, the suffering, the persecuted among us? Is the love of Christ felt here? Is there a sense of the spirit that he dwells here empowering our fellowship? Is there affection from Christ between each other, loyalty, brotherly love, mercy, forgiveness, compassion? Because if these things are not present, then something's going wrong. We haven't centred our fellowship on the blessings of the gospel. Perhaps we don't really understand why we gather and pray together, encouraging one another, deepening those friendships and serving one another, because church is not just about filling our heads with knowledge. It's not just about our individual worship experience. The gospel mindset is about cultivating the bonds of love that we share in Christ, about creating and preserving that unity, that agreement in the gospel that we all have. It binds us together as a family. 
But if those things are present here at New City, and I, I, I believe they are, then is that bond of love that we share the source of our strength and comfort? I mean, nobody would argue with the fact that hope and strength of the Christian should come from Jesus, but all too often we forget that the enduring grace Jesus provides is found in the body of Christ. Everyone wants that direct intervention from Jesus to endure sufferings and difficulties, but rarely do people seek the healing and the blessings that are found through participation in the body of Christ, his church. But it seems pretty clear in our passage today that that's where Paul's pointing us. The church of Jesus Christ is where comfort from Christ is to be found. As this gospel mindset is, is working within us, but I think also, and lastly, we have to ask if these, these threats are, that are outlined in our passage to this unity at work among us, selfishness, conceitedness. I mean, what if we were to give this way of thinking a, a voice in our church? What might it sound like? This church just doesn't understand my special gift. Well, that's a stupid idea. God would never put his blessing on that. Nobody ever notices the things I do. I'm underappreciated. I really don't have time to help out in that way. I'm stressed or busy or any other number of excuses. And I think we could keep going. I mean, there's many derivatives of this. It'll be different for everybody. But my point is, how easily that, is it that attitudes of selfishness and ambition creep into the church from flowing from those self-attending hearts that we all have? And they tear at gospel unity, causing all manner of church hurts. But the fact is that they're rooted in this lack of humility towards one another. We're too often putting ourselves first and our own interests and not considering others more important. And at the end of the day, that's really the heart of the matter. And so we need to work hard, brothers and sisters, at cultivating a servant mindset, lest these carnal ways of thinking become our usual practice. But let's say you're here today and after listening to this gospel mindset of humility, you're thinking Christianity still sounds oppressive. Maybe you're saying, yes, it is a religion for slaves, and that's not for me. Well, I can only point you to the one who was willing to become your servant in our text of Scripture today, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who is perfectly divine, shared in eternal glory, the one to whom you should bow, and yet he was willing to become your servant, to give his life as a ransom for you. Because it was because of that humility that God highly exalted him in the resurrection. And there's a resurrection for us too, to eternal glory for believers, we will share in Christ's glory. So will you not see that embracing this servant mindset through believing the gospel, what Jesus has done for you, and by becoming a servant yourself in the body of Christ, that is the path that leads to eternal glory. Because remember, God likes to turn the ways of the world on their head, to put them to shame. He loves to elevate slaves to the highest place. That if we reject God's wisdom, then he'll put us to shame. So I commend to you that lowly life patterned after the Lord Jesus and belonging also in humility to the church that Jesus creates by his love and spirit. Otherwise, you're treading the road to Mount Disappointment. No matter how much it feels like, you're on the right track. Well, these are hard things, brothers and sisters, so let me pray for us as we uh, set our hand to obeying them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture here. We thank you that we have a saviour who is perfectly humble and was willing to go before us, willing to die for our sins, that we are forgiven and set right before you. Father, we can only be humble from a place of being right with you, righteous and justified, 
Father, we can't earn salvation through by being humble. Rather, it's a fruit of your work within us. And Lord, if we're here today saved and know you, I just pray that your spirit would come and work that in us and make us more humble people for your glory. And may the world see our testimony here in this place and may, may they marvel at, uh, at what they find offensive, but actually you will turn for your glory and our glory. Lord, help us to believe these things, that we would do them. In Christ's name. Amen.